This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Hey, uh, whether you get, like, understand what we uh, what we were just talking about with emotional um, build, oh, what's it called emotional brain therapy, whether that's the way you want to go, you, at some point, you need to focus on your emotions. I'm a big believer that all issues, all relationship issues, all life issues, really, are emotional management issues. Life is great when you're feeling great, right? Is life great when you feel horrible? No. It's the emotion that makes it great or not. Well, no, it's really what's going on. But you've probably had situations where you were at a higher state emotionally, a healthier state emotionally, and still going through difficult stuff. The difficult stuff in life will not go away. Your ability to manage the emotion, it's important. And we just manifested that with uh, Dr. Laurel Mellon. Going through those questions really are pretty powerful, simply because, do you notice, it makes you almost find your shame. It almost makes you, it made me look at my guilt. It made me dig deeper into what I am doing and what I'm not doing with my own life. Those thoughts that she was processing me through create a lot of my emotional stress. So the the greatest value of what I think I just saw with uh, Dr. Mellon's work is that it gives me – I took a space, and in that space, I went and started to make change. When we make change and we make space and we focus on our emotions and our feelings, something's going to change. Something's going to happen, and uh, the problem is most of us don't ever make the time to do that. So make sure you take time to look at your emotions. You are not your emotion. If you're mad, you're not mad. You're still yourself you got to go put your madness in space, right? Do something about it. A little coach's corner for you. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. We got, you, you got these beautiful little kids. You know, you put them in their football gear for the first time. Their helmet spins around their little head. They feel like a superstar. They've got the armbands, the sweatbands, even though they really won't sweat because they're hardly going to run. And yet, you, the entire time, are you thinking about them being an NFL quarterback? Right? You've got these dreams that he's going to be like Dad. He's going to throw the game-winning pass. And then you see him line up, the coaches line your boy up next to everyone else. And just to have a little, you know, a little workout. Everybody run to the fence. And as they all run to the fence, you notice your boy doesn't run as fast as the others. Even the heavy linemen are outrunning your boy. You feel this anger start to just a little, just a little fire brewing deep in your head. What is he doing? Run, boy! Run! You start pushing your kid. He's never going to be a quarterback if he can't outrun the line. Day one. And I've seen it with all of my kids. Oh, man, we raised some beautiful boys that love sports. We got involved in the football league. It was so wonderful. Year after year, spending $500-plus a year to play football. Now I'm down to three boys that could play, 
And uh, my wife so diligently dedicated some time, has given time to be on the committee for the football league this year. She's volunteering her time to the football league. And my 11-year-old and 13-year-old boys don't want to play anymore. They want to play lacrosse and tennis. Oh, come on. No, I really don't like it, Dad. Ah, sure you do. Oh, don't really like it. No, come on. At what point do you dig deep into the hearts of your children and let them be them? As a parent, it's a hard thing because sometimes you think they don't know what's right. I mean, this was the same kid that was trying to microwave the metal bowl. So if you don't know how to what to microwave, son, maybe you don't know what sport you want to play this year. What do you do? You watch the Olympics. You dream of your son being at the Olympics or whatever, or being the best piano player, or being the best, uh, you know, being elected in an office at school. How on earth do you get to the point where you can just love them for who they are? I think in the end, um, this is always going to be more about you than it will be them. When you just look at the odds of them going pro, it's not, those aren't great odds. But the principles they can learn in these sports, the principles they can learn about themselves, it's a powerful thing. So will you just look at how you are watching the Olympics? Look at how you're talking about the Olympics with your kids. See if it's all about competition. See if it's about trying. Are you putting an undue stress on your child? Are you being real clear, really clear with them on what you really want out of sports? If it's not, if it's not that they have to be the best athlete, what is it that you want them to become? Are your children clear of that? If they're not clear, guess what? Then the value of sports, it's probably not being learned. Uh, we had a friend whose father very much wanted them to be a top athlete and uh, most talented kid I've ever seen playing a sport that uh, my son was on his team, and he was just incredible. And his junior year, when he was right about to just blossom, all the scouts were coming to see him. He quit. He's done. Doesn't want to do it anymore. It's not fun anymore. And really what I think it was was a, the voice of a teenage boy coming out, controlling something he could control, and uh, basically pushing back on his father. So watch out what, what you're creating. And, and instead, when you're sitting down watching the Olympics, let's all try to realize this is great for America. The, you know, they're doing well. The teams are incredible. And this is more than that. This is also seeing the refugees – that are also competing, the ones that weren't competing. You know, a year ago, they were pushing a boat full of their family members to save lives, and now they're running a race. And they actually didn't win, right? But they won. They're in the Olympics. They won the refugee lotto. And uh, those stories are really powerful and important. So make sure that you're not always just moving to the medals list with your kids and in their lives. Don't always just move to the medals list. 
make sure you're learning the backstories, especially the backstories in the second you know round uh, group that that didn't make it to the finals. There's some amazing stories of people and the principles, talk principles. And I think th- then you're creating something powerful, folks. Man, the kids, they're very, they're very willing to learn and open to, uh, to, to have opportunity from the parents. So You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. As a parent, you, you're trying to truly change your children uh, long-term. Always think long-term as we're talking about these issues with Heather. I could just tell somebody to vote for Trump or Hillary anytime, right? We could just go right there, right to the answer, hand it to our kids. The problem is um, you want them to have the skills and the tools to be able to do this long-term. And in the end, if we're not setting up the long-term game for them, we're hindering them. Sometimes the easy, fast answers haven't fixed anything. They, in fact, have just made a few things worse. Some other tools I always suggest uh, when we're trying to talk uh, about any problem-solving issue with with another person, make sure that you – you push your kids and anybody to spend more time trying to understand the issue. One, thank you. One of the things I found is that we don't know the issues well enough. And so when a politician can throw something out there and nobody questions it, the media might question it. They might even give it five Pinocchios or whatever. But in the end, um, most of the, the, the voters don't have a clue that they're full of it. They don't have a clue about what's going on because they haven't studied these issues out. A lot of people are so partisan and they just vote down the party line that they're not actually informed about what's going on. What really is happening with jobs, right? When the, when the um, Obama administration tells you that they put 20 million people on, um, you know, on the health care that weren't on it before, that just sounds like a great number, right? It's awesome. And what's happening to the other 80% of people that were on health care? What's happened to theirs? Do you know? Because it's more than just one issue. There's 10 issues going on here. Has costs gone up for people? I mean, you hear that thrown around. Is that true? Is that an actual fact? So anyway, broaden your own pool of understanding. Make sure just as a listener or as a voter yourself that you avoid being overly simplistic, sensational, or even sensitive. Thank you. We have so many people that are just so sensitive to what others are saying that uh, it starts fights. It starts. I listened to a out, you know, all these outtakes that came from the Trump camp, all the outtakes that came from um, some of the Clinton camps. And you're sitting there thinking, are these adults presenting, you know, political arguments or are they just highly sensitive people freaking out on each other? Another rule about, I think, politics in general, you don't need to pile on. Ben loves a good pile on. Um, You don't need to pile on to somebody. A lot of times when people make mistakes or say something stupid, it's obvious. To pile on only makes you look like a bully. And again, that's what I want to teach my kids because when they're having an issue in their world, I don't want my child to be the one jumping on the one that's already down. Make sense? That's why uh, Heather's advice on working on the principles and the values are so much more important than positions. Positions are going to change. Principles and values, they're eternal. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, you're seeing it play out in the news with uh, Donald Trump. I think even Hillary Clinton, this whole idea of emotional intelligence to be a leader, 
you have to be able to manage your emotion. You have to be able to recognize your own emotions uh, and manage them so that, that your emotional outbursts, your emotional, your fears, your concerns aren't leading you. You also have to have the ability to recognize the emotions of others and know how to lower those emotions, not make them worse. And finally, I've got to find a way to enroll people into my emotion. It's called emotional intelligence. And as we see people that aren't trusting two of our political leaders, um, Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump, it might simply be part of the reason we don't trust. We trust people that we believe have emotional intelligence, that they're not going to fly off the handle. I think of it as like a Coke bottle. If I shake a Coke bottle um, or, by, by the way, Diet Pepsi, whatever have you, uh, if I shake it and create a, I'll create a reaction. But if I hand you the bottle and you know I just shook it, you're not going to want to open it. You're not going to trust the explosion that's going to take place. So if you're out there and you feel like people don't listen to you, they don't necessarily trust you, they stay away from you at certain times, it might be that they're sensing that you aren't safe. You're not a safe person because you can't control how you respond in certain in certain cases. Perhaps Hillary Clinton um, – went and hid emails because she's it, she it created fear it she's been in the spotlight forever the media has been harsh on Hillary Clinton and she found it easier to just you know try to control it all on her own nonetheless people don't trust her because of that Donald Trump ends up saying whatever he feels and if you make a, make fun of him or jab him he reacts and crushes you thinking that that's a manly move. The problem is, deep down, we don't trust people that aren't predictable and safe. And it's not something that you can just intellectualize. There's a gut reaction that people have to to unsafe people. And it goes back to the days that we had to live, you know, as a tribe. And if somebody was a loose cannon in the tribe... By the way, more likely to create problems, more likely to end up dying, and more likely to being kicked out of the tribe. So emotionally intelligent people, it's a huge advantage. It is something we should be teaching our kids. But don't just pass it down to the kids. First, look at yourself. Do people trust you and your ability to manage emotion? It might be a good thing, too, that you look at your political candidates. Do they possess emotional intelligence? And and is that one of the reasons why you trust them or you don't trust them? It's not going away, folks. It's part of who we are, and it's actually a huge driver of success. Go check us out on iTunes and tune in. Go find our BYU Radio app. Download that so you can get back to all of our podcasts, hundreds of them, uh, for you to archive and, and to go listen to. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, as summer closes and September officially gets underway, over a million students will be attending college for the first time 
And while college marks the beginning of independence for some, some other students are having their parents come along for their first year of college. Here to discuss helicopter parenting is author of the book, How to Raise an Adult, Break Free of the Overparenting Trap and Prepare Your Kid for Success, Julie Lithcott-Hames. Welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. So great to have you. This is a... uh, I see it a lot just in my own life and my own work uh, with students here at Brigham Young University, but more importantly, in my coaching world. And I I found that um, a lot of us, and you you have been a former Stanford University dean of freshmen, did you see a lot of kids coming in who really had never experienced the world because their parents did all the experiencing for them? Yeah, Matt, that's exactly what I was seeing. And it alarmed me because, in theory, I was working with students who are some of the most bright and capable um, in our nation around the world, and yet they seem so hampered, so unfamiliar with their own selves, very reliant upon a parent to do everything from uh, track their deadlines, talk to faculty if there was a problem with a grade, um, even call to wake them up. Um, (laughs) They seemed very good at going through the motions, very, very good at going through the motions of life, but had they ever had to really kind of stand on their own and Many of them, for many of them, the answer was no, and they looked rather bewildered then um, and, f- and afraid <clears throat> at the prospect of having to kind of be their own, be the adult in their own life. Do I guess, is that, because they, they still got into Stanford, so it seems like I, maybe what we're doing to, to the requirements we're setting for kids to get in aren't necessarily that they're healthy adults, but just that, or on the, you know, healthy young adults, but that they can pass the ACT or they can they can get a good grade are we are we just not preparing them for adulthood I think that's exactly right and let me pause and say this is this is hardly just a Stanford problem right no this is everywhere at BYU yeah I would talk to colleagues at campuses all over the country all different types of schools and we were all noticing the same thing in the last decade Um, I call it the checklisted childhood you've asked kind of what led to this and my answer is we seem to have constructed in communities where parents are at least middle class um, and certainly upper middle class and beyond what I call the checklisted childhood, which is the the perfect childhood, the childhood where every afternoon has an enriching activity. But I think in, a, in essence, we've put kids in a cage of enrichment. It's not in a wide open field. It's not an opportunity to play. It's, you know, take these tests, do this homework, be in this activity, get these accolades and these awards, all designed to lead to admission to whatever college we might have in mind. And so while a child might be very, very good at meeting our very, very high expectations, we've essentially pointed them in a certain direction, laid the path for them, smoothed the path. Sometimes we're dragging them down the path. (laughs) We shouldn't be surprised then when they get to whatever destination we had in mind, and they are ill-equipped to kind of continue walking on their own. Yeah, it's so true. That's such a great phrase, the checklist of childhood. So as a parent, if I'm sitting there and I have the three things I need to get done for my kids every night— um, that might be the wrong way to look at life. It might be the three things my kids need to do to become an adult. That's exactly right. And I and to that point, too many of us are saying, oh, we have a lot of homework tonight. Well, no, we don't. <laughs> our son does or our daughter does. You know, we're on the travel soccer team. No, our son is or our daughter is. I think too many of us have our own sense of self wrapped up in our kids' activities and our kids' achievement. Um, So we feel better or worse about our own selves if we can say, well, this is the grade we got or this is the opportunity we're we're taking advantage of. Listen to that language because I hear that all the time. 
Yeah. We. Well, we. When was the last time you kicked a goal, Mom? <laughs> Come on. Get out right. there. Talk, right. uh, talk to us about you introduced three types of over-parenting. Yeah. What, what do you call, what are the overs? Yeah. Well, I did this because we, we use the phrase helicopter, snowplow parent, lawnmower parent. I wanted to get at the actual behaviors, and here's what they are. Um, overprotection. This is the mindset that the world is scary and unsafe and unpredictable, and therefore I must prevent and protect at every turn instead mm. of prepare you for what's out there. Uh, there's over-directing, uh, otherwise known as the tiger type of parenting. This is the, you know, intense pressure to do a certain course of study or become a certain type of person. Uh, I know best what leads to success, kid, and you will do as I say. Mm. And the third type is the handholder or the concierge. You know, I will handle it for you. I will keep track of your deadlines like I'm your executive assistant. I will go talk to that authority figure in your life on your behalf. I will advocate for you. I will defend. I will, you know, smooth the path. I will hold your hand um, instead of teaching you how to be responsible, accountable, um, you know, and advocate for yourself. Boy, Talk about creating a neurotic child. Yes, well, we shouldn't be surprised. So many young adults, you know, on your campus, on my former campus, around the nation, are struggling with, you know, anxiety and depression at rates never before seen. And studies are starting to link this style of overparenting with higher rates of anxiety and depression. Essentially, we're doing so much for them, having high expectations, trying to handle everything they can't handle for themselves. We're kind of depriving them at a very basic level of the chance to be their own person, which really messes with a person's psyche. And does this, I mean, I guess, has this been going on for multiple generations? I mean, I don't remember being overprotected or overdirected or having my hand held. Well, Matt, I don't know how old you are. I'm but, uh, 47, I just found out. You're 47? Yeah, I used to think well, I was 48. You know what? I'm 48, but Bingo. sometimes I think I'm 47, so I'm right there with you. So, so did you, what did you feel? <laughs> well, things have changed, and let me tell you when things changed. Um, in the, and I, I learned this fascinatingly because um, I was working with college students um, starting in the late 90s, and that was when we first began to see parents kind of encroaching upon the shores of the university. <laughs> you know, how can I be involved in the day-to-day management of life? Yeah. So I said, wait a minute, if you're, if you're 18 years old in 1998 and your parents are over-involved, what was happening when you were little, early 80s? Um, and I began to read up on this and to study the work of other people, and this is what I learned. In the early to mid-1980s, we had re- five important changes happening in this country. Number one, um, Stranger Danger was born. True. The concept, there was a made-for-TV movie, Adam, uh, produced by John Walsh, you know, who went on. Yeah. Found, right. Okay, so Stranger Danger, 1983, based on, that, that's when the fear was really born in our minds, 1983. The play date was born in 1984, perhaps <laughs> not unrelated, but also because we had a lot of moms going back to work, and all of a sudden the concept of when can kids play with one another was a little bit more complicated. So Stranger Danger, 83, play date, 84, self-esteem movement was born during this time. This is the notion, as you know, as a coach, yeah. you know, let's give them a ribbon, a trophy, a certificate just for being on the team, not for being any good at it. <laughs> and so our kids' childhoods, our childhood bookshelves became littered with all this stuff. Um, then a book was published called A Nation at Risk saying American kids needed you know, more teaching to the test, more testing in order to be more competitive with their international peers. And finally, we became safer. Seatbelt laws, bike, safe, bike helmet laws, car seat laws, 
all rolled into effect across the 50 states during the mid-1980s. And no doubt they made us safer on the roads, but they led to this mindset that we could literally prevent our kids from suffering any bruise. And so, you know, we've, we've become a, a nation with houses with, you know, rubberized corners on every <laughs> coffee table right. um, because we don't want them to have a scrape, a bump, or, or a bruise. So all of these things, you know, conspired to change childhood. You know, childhood was really now the domain of parents um, hovering, watchful, you know, always there um, in ways that just previously had not been the case. And that set of kids, millennials, by the way, they're the earliest wave of the millennial generation, were subjected to this childhood. It's no wonder they could fail to launch, as oh, the media sure. does. They've just been, you know, treated like veal, you know, raised <laughs> to, for some perfect moment. But, you know, they're, they're sort of slaughtered out in the real world. That we, yeah, but we've also fattened to, them up, too, haven't we? we they've, me? They've, we've, we've, we've fattened them up yes. like a good veal, I guess. Yeah. Um, isn't that... It's true. And I, as, I, as you're going down that list, I'm thinking, yeah, but I was, you know, 18. Right. So I, I, I guess I had experienced stranger danger, but I, we didn't have the kidnapping cases that make the top of, of the stories in the news. And, and then Nancy Grace talking about them for hours on end. And I mean, it's, it's a whole different age of fear, it seems like. Well, but, the, but to your point, it's a different age of fear. But the rates of such atrocities have not increased. No. So we just know about them. We're all able to access news and information 24-7, 365, which was not true when you and I were right, young. Right, okay, Thanks, but, heavens. But the, right. Thank heavens. <laughs> that's a different show. <laughs> okay. But these things are not happening with greater frequency. In a nation with 74 million children, the FBI statistics um, indicate that 115 cases of child abduction and murder at the hands of a stranger are happening. And that's an infinitesimal number, given how many children we have in our nation. Now, I'm not saying it's not horrific. Of course it's horrific. Right. I have two kids. I have two teenagers. I, you know, None of us can bear to imagine that kind of thing happening to any child. But we behave as if it's likely every day, every afternoon. Um, and so we don't let them play in parks. We don't let them on sidewalks. The truth is they're at far greater risk of death by being a passenger in a car. Right. But nobody's questioning that. They're at far greater risk of death by playing football. Okay? But totally. nobody's, nobody's questioning that. So we have this really outblown notion of the extent to which that, that lurking stranger is a real and present threat. And it really has, in, in many ways, changed how we approach childhood. That's so true. So true. Okay, let's take a break. We're speaking with uh, Julia Lifcott-Hames. She's author of the book, How to Raise an Adult, Break Free of the Overparenting Trap and Prepare Your Kids for Success. When we come back, we'll be talking solutions. What can we do as parents to lighten up and uh, actually empower, put a little load on the child so that they can strengthen their back? We'll be back, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping your children and you live longer, healthier, happier lives. We'll be right back. Somewhere, somewhere in heaven above me, I know, I know that my mom is proud of me. Oh, mama. Cause I'm a dentist. Welcome back <laughs> to the Matt Townsend Show. Nothing makes a mom more proud than when you finally are a dentist. That's from Little Shop of Horrors. Oh, you got to love it. Folks, today we're talking about parenting, really over-parenting. And uh, if you're not careful, 
you may not raise a child that could be a healthy adult. And when that happens, they're just going to be living with you and creating problems for the rest of your life, which, hey, for some might not. That's not bad. I'll do that. I'll raise him for the rest and his family. Joining us on the phone is Julie Lithcott-Hames. She's the author of the book, How to Raise an Adult, Break Free of the Overparenting Trap, and Prepare Your Kids for Success. Thank you so much, Julie, for being with us. My pleasure. Nice to be back. What a great, uh, what a great topic and an important topic, especially as kids are starting school. Before the break, you were talking to us about some of the dangers of overparenting. The the fact that we you know become the overprotective, overdirecting, handholding parent. But is there is there uh, the the other side of the coin would be that we're underparenting. We're not we're not doing anything. Sure. We're just ignoring them. Do we need to worry about that as well? Absolutely. So. Um, you know, I'm not in any way advocating that we turn our back on right. our kids or neglect them. What I'm saying is we have to parent for the long view, the long run, which is uh, to imagine that day uh, way in the distant future, we hope, when we won't be around to uh, smooth our kids' path for them and, uh, or, you know, or handle it, whatever it may be. We need to know our kids um, can, can thrive out there uh, without us. Um, you know, and thriving doesn't mean that their solution is to text us to handle, you know, the stuff of life, whatever it is. Uh, I think a good word here is we need to know our kids can fend for themselves. You know, this is the job of, of any parent in the animal kingdom, you know, to raise our offspring, to have the skills so that they can look after themselves and, um, and maybe even raise the next generation. So, um, so yeah, we don't want to be neglecting or abandoning them in any shape or, or sense right. of the word. We want to be teaching them. Every year we ought to desire that our kids, you know, have, have learned to do more, are more responsible, um, you know, are, are, have better judgment, are more capable. And there's this beautiful four-step method that I learned from a mom here in Silicon Valley named Stacy Ashland. She's raising a kid with special needs, but she also has a second child developing typically. And she says, look, you know, when, you, when your kid has special needs, you have to be more deliberate about teaching life skills because the, the disability might get in the way. And she's got this handy four-step method that I think is brilliant and can apply to all of us um, for any skill, whether you're trying to teach a kid to make, make food in the kitchen or remember to put their own stuff in their backpack or learn how to cross the street. This is a, a beautiful method. Number one, you do it for them. And let's face it, we do that from infancy through toddlerhood through early childhood, you know, but, but we can start teaching them to do for themselves pretty young. But in the beginning, we're doing it for them. That's step one. Right. Step two, you do it with them. Step three, you watch them do it. And step four, they can do it completely independently. So the teaching and learning and growth happens in steps two and three, where they're, you, you know, you're, you're doing it with them, and then you're watching them, not micromanaging them, but you know, giving them advice and guidance um, um, and feedback as they need it. But ultimately, we want our kids to get to step four, so that when they go off to BYU, they don't find themselves three or four weeks into it saying, oh, my gosh, I don't know how to make it through a day without my mom or dad telling yeah. me what to do. I burnt the ramen again. I burnt the ramen, Mom. Yeah. yeah. Or so which true. type of ramen do I like? <laughs> you know, like so unfamiliar with making their own food, they don't even know what it is they like. They're just accustomed to seeing it arrive on a plate. It's And, and even even the steps in between these where – we do it for them. We don't always create a nice segue of now letting them do it themselves. And right. we we just kind of throw it at them. But right. you can ramp it up over time. Right. You must ramp it up over time. Otherwise, it's cold and cruel. You know, if you've been doing too much for a you know 16 or 17-year-old and then 18-year-old and then they go off to college – 
you've really dropped them cold turkey in a brand new environment where they will be expected to be able to think and plan and do and you know handle so much for themselves. It's really quite unfair to coddle them through 18 years and then drop them off and expect them somehow to thrive. I mean, that's on you, parent. If that's if your kid has trouble thriving at that point, well, take a look in the mirror, okay? Yeah, childhood is meant to prepare our kids for that inevitable day when they're capable of going off to college, going to serve on a mission, right. going into the military, you know, going into the workplace, whatever it is. You know, back in the day, as we like to say, you know, you and I were coming up in the 80s, you know, 18 meant something quite different than what it means today. And I think we have to take a hard look at what's going on and why that is and why, why, are, why do we desire for our kids to be less capable somehow than we were. Hmm. It's such a because we we would say, well, we don't want that, Julie. We just want to give them the best, right? Of course. And Matt, we love our kids fiercely. We parents, we just this this love we have for our children, this biological impulse is so strong, it's so powerful. And here's where we've just gotten a little bit misguided. We think to love is to do it all for them, instead of realizing to love is to teach them to do more and more for themselves. We ought to be interested in developing their character, their work ethic. You know, we need to send them out in the world capable of rolling up their sleeves, working hard and pitching in, and being really kind to fellow humans. I mean, those are the building blocks. You know, that's, you, you prepare a kid with, with those fundamentals, you know, they can go out and succeed in the world. Um, but instead, we've decided, no, 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 I have to arrange it, I have to plan it, I have to remind them, I have to do it for them. Parents are kind of overhelping with homework in so many communities, more interested in helping their kid get the A than in making sure their kid learns. And so they become college students who still send work back home for parents to check. I mean, that's just a problem <laughs> in so many ways. And eventually... Uh, I had a I had a family member that would always edit my paper, so I would I knew in my head I just had to get it to about eighty five percent, and then my brilliant family member would just edit it and clean it all up right. until all of a sudden I'm in grads I'm getting a master's degree and I'm thinking, ah, oh, I'm gonna have to pay someone to edit my paper because right. I don't have that confidence. Well, and you know what? Right, editing is a great skill. We all should if we're writers. We, we should show our work to other people and get feedback. There's a difference between someone um, circling problems, writing comments, saying, t- you know, this isn't clear. What do you mean here? Say more. You've got to support this. That's helpful and that's ethical. But when a parent goes in and outright rewrites it for the kid, right. because they know, the parent knows I'm a better writer, therefore I'm going to polish this, the kid isn't learning anything. The people that the paper is submitted to think the kid has done this work. That's the unethical part. You know, and the kid kind of knows I didn't do my own work. I'm not actually capable. So, you know, there's, there's that sort of fine, there's that fine line. There's the healthy side of helping. You know, there's the appropriate ethical side. And then there's the crossing the line into inappropriate. Talk about the, the definition of success. I guess part of it you just did where it's more about character and work ethic and I guess uh, your ability to adapt than it is about becoming the dentist. Right. But, but for exactly. parents, so much, it's like you're going to college, you will get a degree, and it, you, know, you probably ought to be a doctor like your dad. <laughs> yeah. So you're going to college, I pretty much don't have a problem with, in that 
a college degree these days is kind of the equivalent in terms of a workplace credential, you know, that a high, as a, equivalent to a high school degree from, say, 30 years ago. That is, more jobs will be available to you if you have that college degree. Not to say everyone has to go, but I can see why parents are saying you're going to college. We want our kids to be prepared for greater opportunity. Telling them what to be, though, that I find is an assault on the human self, okay? We parents, we're, we want them to follow in our footsteps. I'm a doctor, therefore you should be a doctor. Mm. Or we want to live vicariously. I always wanted to be a doctor. I didn't become one, so now I want to make my kid become a doctor. Those are really problematic things, okay? Right. That's about our own ego and our own needs. Instead, we ought to take an interest in that little human, our son or daughter, take an interest in what they seem to be good at, what they seem to love, and, and encourage them toward those things, Okay. So it's not that we should want our kid to be a doctor or a dentist. We want our kid to discover their talents and their skills and what, you know, what they value, what yeah. they care about, and then go and, and do that work. I mean, that's, that's a meaningful, rewarding professional life when we're doing work we're not only good at, but that we also love. And, and you can help them discover their talents and skills right now. You could be – I mean, there's really awesome assessments. You could be talking about skills and character traits versus, you know, goals and uh, trophies. Yep. Absolutely. That's stuff we could be doing today. Absolutely. There are great assessments like um, the strength finder. Yeah, finder, people, yeah. Um, when a kid is older, the Myers-Briggs. Um, here's, here's the way I like to think about it. When I was a college dean at Stanford – Students would say, you know, I don't know what I want to do with my life. And I said, all right, that's normal. You know, <laughs> don't worry. Let's start talking about what you do know about yourself. You know, well, what, what are you really interested in topically? You know, what, what, what issues do you care about? And, and a student might say, you know, well, I really care about poverty. I'm really, you know, I'm really, you know, I want to do something about poverty. And I say, okay, great. It's great to know that. Now let's um, just take that as an example. Now let's talk about how you like to be in the world. Um, do you like to write? Do you like to do research? Do you like to um, be talking to people all the time? Uh, do you like to travel? Do you like to crunch numbers? Um, because everyone from economists to biologists to journalists to poets uh, can help alleviate poverty through mm. their work. Mm. So you've got to learn about yourself. You know, do I want to be the, uh, the economist, you know, crunching numbers that are going to turn into some kind of policy that's going to help alleviate poverty? Or do I want to be a narrative journalist telling really powerful stories that will move other people to change their habits uh, and do more to alleviate poverty? And it was just a way of illustrating almost anything is possible. But, you know, at the root of what you should do is know yourself. What am I good at? What do I love? You know, and plan accordingly. Mm. Julie, as we wrap it up, what's the one thing? I always ask for the one thing that makes the biggest difference. If, if a parent really needs to get on it, let's say they've got a 17-year-old and they've been a little behind in, in parenting, what's the one thing they can do today to get it started? Well, uh, one thing. Uh, realize that your job as a parent is to put yourself out of a job. Um, and therefore, sit down with that 17-year-old and say, I've been doing too much for you. I was doing it with love, but I realized the most loving thing is to help you do for yourself. So let's pick three things you're going to be responsible for. We're going to teach you how to do it. We're going to help you. But let's say in two to three months, you're going to be capable of doing these things by yourself. Mm. Good stuff. Julie, yeah. you did it. You did it. You did it. Good job. Thanks, Julie Lithcott-Hames, uh, How to Raise, how an, to raise adult. an Adult. Thank you so much. Thank you. Great to have you on the show. How to Raise an Adult, Break Free of the Overparenting Trap, and Prepare Your Kids for Success. 
just one day at a time. One day at a time. We'll take a break, folks. When we come back, continue the discussion. We'll be uh, doing a little feature on Labor Day so you know what to celebrate this weekend. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball. Play ball. You know, we, when we bring on great guests like Julie in the book, How to Raise an Adult, we don't want to induce guilt, right? That's, that's not the goal. But it is to just inform you uh, of what's happening out there and what the data and the research shows. If you want your child to be an independent, healthy being, you have to become intentional in that process. Don't assume that just getting them to graduate from high school is the key to getting them to be an, a, a dynamic, healthy, character-driven child, right? You got to talk about character if you want to grow character. You have to talk about uh, accountability and responsibility if you want that. If you, if you want trust and respect from your child, then you have to talk about trust and respect. You can't expect to get something from your child that you're not putting into them in an intentional, overt way. So just reevaluate. Look at what you do every day and just say, great, what's one thing I can do to pick it up and make it even better? Maybe I could stop doing a few things as well, like homework. Maybe I could turn off the TV and spend a little more time helping them. Anyway, again, not to, not to guilt you, not to make you feel overwhelmed, but just it's part of the game. It's part of the game. Now, with Labor Day coming up this uh, weekend uh, and Monday, it's, we thought we'd get into giving you some tools around that as well. A lot of people around the office are looking forward to it, right? But uh, two, everyone – some don't even know what's going on. You probably have a nice barbecue plan, for example, four-day weekend. But what is Labor Day actually celebrating? Our producer, Leanna Tan, is going to show us how Labor Day for many Americans might mean just moving their leisure time to their living rooms instead of their office. She'll teach us some ways that we can be more productive. Hi-ho, hi-ho, it's home from work we go. Growing up, I didn't really know what Labor Day was. I just thought it was a method of torture teachers used after making us get back into the school mode and then randomly surprising us with a day off so we went back into summer break mode, but then dragging us back to school a day later. It made me very confused as a child. I used to think Labor Day was just a day to celebrate all those mothers who birthed their children. But actually, according to Wikipedia, it's the first Monday in September that celebrates and remembers the social and economic achievements of American workers. What better way to celebrate productivity and achievement than by doing nothing? ABC News came out with an article that said, Americans work more than anyone in the industrialized world. That's really hard for me to believe. Maybe Americans clock in longer than anyone else, but how much of that time are they actually working? Hey, it's my man Dave. Good morning. Hey, did you catch that game last night? Holy cow, what a touchdown, man. Oh, did he pay An article called hard. On the Clock, How Americans Waste Time at Work on more.com says that on average, Americans waste two hours a day at work. And that costs companies $759 billion in wages, for which they received no return on investment. <laughs> Dave, you busy here. I got to show you this YouTube video. Check it out. It's a cat that looks like a Pop-Tart. And for the employees, 
That time that could be spent getting ahead on projects or acquiring new skills to work toward promotion is too often thrown away on shopping online, buying groceries, or talking to friends on the phone. Wow, I felt extremely guilty. I mean, do I even deserve a Labor Day holiday? Do any of us even deserve it? Okay, so I don't online shop or buy my groceries at work, but I think we're all guilty of wasting time. So, in my guilty conscience, I came up with five things that we can do to improve our work focus and performance so that we can spend our Labor Day actually celebrating our labor. Why? Set manageable goals. Before, my energy was all over the place. Now, it's concentrated like a laser beam. <laughs> Ask your boss or coworkers what else needs to be done. They can probably think of many things that you could do or new skills that you could learn to be more valuable to the company. It's always more motivating to walk into work if you have a plan to stay on task. Two. Don't open unrelated windows or your internet browser. It's the Late Show! You think you'll only spend a couple of minutes checking your other email, shopping online, or messaging on Facebook, but that couple of minutes suddenly becomes much more enticing than motivating yourself to find a work task to do. So resist the temptation to open those tabs and even try putting your phone on airplane mode. A study done by Gloria Mark from University of California says that it takes an average of 25 minutes to refocus after getting distracted. Just think, that's like an hour of time to refocus after just reading two texts. Three. Use headphones. The workplace can be bustling and there are many interesting conversations that can be tempting to join. I get it. Working all day sometimes means you don't have time to go home and catch the latest episode of The Bachelor. So you have to compensate by virtually living through your coworkers' love lives. And while coworker bonding is a vital part to a healthy workplace, starting the day off with a two-hour conversation about what dress they're going to wear this weekend probably isn't necessary. Four. Get up and walk around. That is an SUV. Humans ride around in it because they are slowly losing their ability to walk. Productive at work doesn't mean that you're glued to your computer every second of every day. Working does require you to creatively think and let your mind wander a little. If you try staring at your computer every moment, you'll realize that you're actually being less productive. I'm bored. Sometimes your body needs a change of scenery. Jack Grapple, a doctor in exercise physiology from Florida State University, says movement and exercise stimulate flow throughout the body, which leads to a brief period of hyperoxygenation in the brain. The phenomenon lasts only a minute or two, but the effects linger, increasing both energy and attentiveness, and that this helps physical fitness and intellectual performance. Five. Treat yourself. Clothes. Treat yourself. Fragrances. Treat yourself. Massages. Treat yourself. Today I don't feel like doing anything. Sometimes your next paycheck just isn't motivating enough when you realize you can get paid the same amount to stare at a computer, occasionally text a friend, and chat with your coworkers as you can to actually work. So give yourself incentive. Maybe you don't eat lunch until you finish an assignment, or you plow through some emails before taking a walk outside. Whatever you do, remember that work shouldn't have to be excruciating. So this Labor Day, don't spend it wallowing in guilt of how you don't actually deserve the holiday. Just make some adjustments so you can be guilt-free next year. And if you really feel guilty after listening to this and feel that you just can't celebrate making any contribution to America's productivity and achievement, don't worry. You still can celebrate your mother, who went through a lot of labor to bring you into this world. Actually, I don't know if that makes you feel any less guilty. Well, happy Labor Day weekend. I'm Leanna Tan, and that's my little tangent. 
This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. It's crazy. Every once in a while, I think we all just need to go take a break and go... I don't know why I did it, but it just, I guess it came natural. But I went, and when I was off on my vacation, I went to uh, the Reagan Museum, Presidential Museum. I also, for some odd reason, chose, of all movies to watch, a three-and-a-half-hour movie of Gandhi. I watched. And, well, it took like a day because <laughs> I kept being interrupted. But anyway, what I learned um, – we we've we this is your life folks this is your world this is this is up to you and um well like we just learned from dr rand we all have techniques we all have you know policies we all have paradigms that we're going to govern our govern our lives by and and you have to decide what yours is and it doesn't have to be absolute i mean it doesn't have to be that you are always um charitable to the person kicking you in the teeth, but it, you might need to be charitable to yourself. So the principle, I think, can work. It just may not work the way you think it's going to work. Um, so be open and willing to, to look deeper into your principles, into your beliefs. One of the reasons I, I was um, taken aback is because to see the parallel of a Ronald Reagan who kind of knew that he deep in his heart had this belief that he was going to impact people. And he wanted to impact people um, for good. And then combine that with a Gandhi who had this principle-centered way of, of seeing life that no matter what, you're going to do the hard thing and you just do it. And you don't do it because it's easy. You do it because it's hard and you do it. Um, I also at the, at the Ronald Reagan Museum, they, they had a, a, a show going on that was from the Vatican as well. And I saw a wonderful uh, painting of Mother Teresa – and Pope John Paul that I thought, oh, what a beautiful setting that was. And, and this, this painting was incredible. But here's a quote that, again, goes back to Mother Teresa. Um, and it's just a basic – it's a basic concept. People are often unreasonable, irrational, self-centered. Forgive them anyway. If you are kind, people may accuse you of selfish ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. If you are successful, you will win some unfaithful friends and some genuine enemies. Succeed anyway. If you are honest and sincere, people may deceive you. Be honest and sincere anyway. What you spend years creating, others could destroy overnight. Create anyway. If you find serenity, happiness, some may be jealous. Be happy anyway. The good you do today will often be forgotten. Do good anyway. Give the best you have, and it will never be enough. Give your best anyway. In the final analysis, it is between you and God. It was never between you and them anyway. So let's just do what's right and just do it because it's right and trust the principles to deliver the results we need. Do it anyway. It's always between you and God anyway, right? You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. So I do a lot of coaching of couples, and I sit down. We do what we can to help them learn to connect and stay connected once they're married. And a lot of people think it should just be easier than it than it really is. It, I mean, true love means it should just come easier, right? Well, no, not always. 
it's hard. And one area that I found um, a lot of people are struggling with is they want to have a hobby or they do have a hobby and they can't they don't necessarily share it with their partner. Uh, it might be easy to love your husband's fishing when you're dating your boyfriend and you're loving each other and you, it's the cutest thing because he wants to go fishing and you want to fish with him because you're dating and it's exciting and you can go out there and while you're out there fishing, you're talking and it's so fun. But that doesn't always last. Very few couples I know are sharing the hobbies that uh, that they that they could be sharing in life. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about Maybe one way to find um, some time to be together is if you could find a way to, to leverage your hobbies, your toys, your leisure time in a way that uh, you could actually do some fun stuff together. For example, here's some rules for you. Remember, it takes energy to make passion, right? So if your marriage is running out of passion, then you got to have energy. And apparently, as we learned this last weekend, there's a lot of people using Pokemon Go as a as a great partner building activity. My daughter, my son-in-law rode their bikes with their baby in tow and went all over their town playing a silly little game together. But um, what it did is it created some energy. It created some passion. They were sharing something. I have family that play tennis every you know day, every week together and uh, as a couple, and it creates some energy. It allows them to not only go do what they both love to do, but to do it together. They can play against other teams. It creates some uh, fun teams um, activities, but also dating opportunities. So if you want some more energy or more passion in your marriage, then you got to figure out a way to invest energy together. Another thing you can do is to do what you can do together, not what you can't. Um, as is obvious, right? At some point, you're going to have to give your limited energy on something. So the dilemma is one person might be a better bicyclist than the other. So honestly, I don't want to ride with you because you ride too fast or you ride too slow. And then we spend our entire time fighting about what we can't do. But maybe there are ways that we can find something that we can do together. Maybe we can't necessarily do our long ride of our bicycles together, but we can go on a bike ride, a short bike ride every every couple days. There might be something that um, you like, that I like. It might simply be that you, you may not love being outdoors and camping but maybe we rent a trailer and you stay in the trailer and we, we go camping via trailer instead of roughing it out in the out in the backwoods. Another goal or another tool that might help us to bridge our hobbies so that we can have some shared hobbies together is um, make up new things together. Make your marriage not be just what it's always been, but maybe there's something that you can do together that you've never done. So go try some new things. Maybe it's trying new restaurants every week. Maybe it's something about, uh, you know, going out um, and and trying a, a club or a dancing activity or a golf club program or a, I mean, there's so many opportunities in this crazy country we live in. There's, are you telling me there's nothing you two can't go find that you'd both be willing to try? It also might mean you may need to leave some of the, you know, your must-nots aside. If you're somebody that says, I will never go hunting, you might want to set that aside. My rule is try everything twice, at least twice. Try it. Just try it. If it's legal, if it's ethical, if it's moral, try it. Remember, you also don't need to like it to do it. 
um, there's a lot of things in our lives we don't like doing, but they're important to do. And that is just as true in our marriages. I may not love doing some of the things my wife loves to do, but I I can still like it because I'm with her. And I can go find some benefit, if even just the benefit is making our marriage better. You don't have to love everything, folks, in life to make it worthwhile. Anyway, that's a few tips for you to help you uh, bridge some of your hobbies, your habits, your goals with your partner. Got to start somewhere. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. So when you are sitting there and you think, I'm such a loser, such a loser, what part of you is, is saying that, right? Is that your brain? Is that your mind? Is that your consciousness, which Dr. Alexander kept bringing up? I call it spirit. What, or is it your spirit? What, what, which, what do you call it? I personally don't believe that your spirit, that consciousness of who you are, that connection to that higher power in the world, I don't believe that that is here to tell you you're fat. Well, no, but my spirit wants me to get healthy, sure. So your spirit would prompt health. It wouldn't create a negative sense of self like you're fat. That's, I believe, your mind's job. Your mind is this idea of who you think you are because of what you've experienced through this life. Your mind is not who you are either. You're not just a boy or a girl. You're not just smart or mm, not so smart but super creative. Whatever your parents told you – um, and everyone else reflected on you as you're growing up. To me, that becomes part of your mind. And the battle becomes this battle between your mind that's trying to control your body or your spirit that's trying to control your body. Now, these are just my views, right? But I found a lot of peace knowing that I can start to recognize the difference. So when I, I sit there and I get mad at somebody and I'm getting more and more mad and I think – and I have to break that person down into – little parts like you're a jerk and you're petty and you don't even have a job and blankety blank. The minute I'm doing that, I'm not in my spirit or as Dr. Alexander would call it, you're not in your consciousness. You are, you're in your mind and your mind feels a need to battle everyone around you because there's only so many resources here, right? And your job, you need as many of them as you can to provide safety for your body. You've got to be more popular than everyone else and prettier and more powerful. And if you don't, oh, what are you? You're just a loser. That's all your mind. So when I work with my clients every day, uh, if I can't get them to start to distinguish between their mind and their spirit or their mind and their consciousness, as soon as they can see the difference between the two, holy cow, it changes everything. That is what I think he's referring to when he calls it going in, go inside, going in you. And I always say, just look to God. If your God came in, and truly, if if you believe in a God and, and that God came and sat down right next to you, tell me what you'd complain about. Well, but Donald Trump, blankety blank, blank, blank. And Ted Cruz, holy cow. Hillary, so is Hillary guilty or not? You wouldn't go to there on any of that. None of that would matter to you. What would matter? Ah, your family, your friends, your connection, who you need to serve, how you need to be better to serve with your God, hand in hand, to make things better. That's probably where we'd go. Anyway, it's just my view. 
little coach's corner for you. Body, mind, and spirit. Try to distinguish between your spirit and your body and your mind. We'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, as we go through life, we've got a lot of meetings we attend. And they could be meetings from community meetings, church meetings, family. You know, you might have a family meeting once in a while. And at business, it's pretty much the name of the game. Meetings, meetings, meetings. In fact, even sometimes you'll see a sports team uh, of one of your children. Once they finish the game, they usually gather you know, on the sidelines or near the sidelines and they talk about what happened during the game. Uh, but have you ever wondered if those meetings in the end, are they really very effective? And are the meetings that you attend very effective? The same uh, ideas that uh, we use in our businesses to make them more effective would, would also impact the rest of our meetings that we attend. A post-quick meeting wrap-up may be the answer for a lot of us to to actually capitalize on the time we've already spent. Joining us to talk about uh, meetings and uh, how to end a meeting to make sure that we actually do something with what we've just spent our time talking about is Bob Frisch. He is one of the world's leading strategic facilitators. He's also the author of the book, uh, Who's in the Room? How Great Leaders Structure and Manage Teams Around Them, and is a a writer for Harvard Business Review and has written many articles there. Bob, thank you so much for being with us today. Good morning. How are you this morning? Excellent, excellent. Good to have you on the show. Now, Bob, do you love a good meeting? Or when you think, I've got to go to a meeting, what do you think? Well, I have to tell you, Malcolm Gladwell said it takes 10,000 hours to master something. Yeah. And because of what I do for a living, I've spent a lot more than 10,000 hours <laughs> in other people's meetings. And uh, they're, uh, they're an art form. They're the, I think of them very much as the forum within which business gets conducted or, or nonprofits or government work. But we really make progress by meeting with other people. That's how people come together. It's how ideas get spread. It's how compromises get made. It's how decisions get made. So meetings are one of the most important things that a person can do in the course of their career and something a lot of people don't spend a lot of time about. My partner Carrie and I at our firm sort of obsess about meetings. We think a lot about what makes a good meeting. And we found it to be a a, a nice topic. A lot of people want to hear more about how to make their meetings more effective. You two have written so many articles um, about meetings that (laughs) on Harvard Business Review, I sit here and I think, really, we, we spend thousands of hours in a meeting, and yet we don't even necessarily tie down our learnings, our best practices. A lot of us have never even been trained in holding a meeting. Well, I think in many companies, I don't think anybody's going home at night saying our meetings are lousy. Yeah. But I think they are hopelessly (laughs) sub-optimized. I think people feel like, gee, I expected to get more than I did. And so that's the problem that, you know, Carrie and I now for about 30 years, 15 years in this room, about 30 years of my career, I have decided that I am going to obsess about how to make meetings better. Hmm. And uh, Harvard Business Review is quite receptive to that. They sort of consider us their meeting experts. So we write about the topic, we blog about the topic, and our consulting firm, Strategic Offsites Group, 
focuses on the most important meetings that are held in many companies during the year, which is the strategy offsites of the executive teams and the boards. Mm. And, and you go in and facilitate those? Is that what you do? We facilitate them, but more importantly, we spend somewhere between a month and three months designing them. Oh, wow. Uh, there's an old joke about consultants that their folks are who will borrow your watch and then charge you to tell you the time. <laughs> we borrow everybody's watch before the meeting and we'll say, look, these folks think it's 3 o'clock. These folks think it's 2 o'clock. These folks are in a completely different time zone. <laughs> we walk in having done surveys, interviews, other diagnostics, so we know pretty much what are the most important issues and what are the thoughts of the people in the room before the meeting starts. So rather than spend half the meeting teasing out who thinks what, we spend a lot of time before meetings understanding that and then using the meeting to get the group aligned around an answer. And that, that seems like the principle, right, is uh, planning. And, and you, you end up then helping to do a lot of the planning, the thinking, the or- orchestrating um, and, and then so pre-planning seems like a critical part of it. And then I guess sticking to the plan is a critical part of it. One of the things we, we found in one of your articles about was about how you end a meeting. Yeah. Uh, talk about ending meetings. And you in, in the article, you, you mentioned about sports teams and how, you know, how they kind of do, a, I guess, a post-mortem. A lot of military, you know, special forces teams, I guess any military uh, team would also do post-mortems as well. Right. I mean, it's a, it's a regular feature. So, so going back to your earlier comment, I mean, you know, Covey once said to, to begin with the end in mind. Right. Very, very often people go into a meeting and say, well, what's this meeting for? Oh, we're going to talk about the company picnic. No, no, no. At the end of this meeting, what will we have debated, decided, discussed, discovered at the end that we don't know right now? What are we actually getting together to do? So many meetings have a topic but they don't necessarily have a purpose. Mm. And so, obviously, the purpose of a football game is to win. Um, That one's easy. Um, But there are certain things, I'm sure, that every team intends to do when they walk onto the field. They've been thinking about the game. They've been watching game films. They have have a game plan. At the end, before everybody gets in their Ferraris and drives home, if it's a professional football team, um, they, they always spend a few minutes in the locker room, even my, my kids' you know, high school baseball team. Right. Before they leave the field, the coach brings them over. They shake the other team's hand. Coach brings them over, spends five or ten minutes, talks to the team, and then they go see mom and dad and get driven home. It, it, you know, it's, a, it's a natural course of many, many teams to either debrief what has happened, make sure there's no bruised feelings, um, take some lessons away before they leave the field. They wrap it up. Very often with business meetings, somebody looks at their watch, the meeting was scheduled 9 to 10, it's 10 o'clock, got another meeting, fold my notebook, and you leave. And, and they don't bother taking literally one or two minutes to actually end the meeting properly. And we found a little bit of discipline. Again, one of the things we've looked at is how do you end a meeting? So we wrote, did a little piece for Harvard, uh, you know, don't, don't end a meeting before you do these three things. But in our mind... A meeting should have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Many, many meetings in many organizations just have a middle. Mm. You jump into a conversation you've already had 15 times. You kind of spin it around the 16th time. Time's up. Go off. And nothing really gets accomplished. And if it did get accomplished, it wasn't documented. It wasn't agreed to. Nothing gets done. We find a little bit of discipline at the end of a meeting saying, okay, 
It's five minutes at 10, meeting ends at 10. Let me spend five minutes wrapping up the meeting. Everybody understands what we've discussed, decided. We'll talk about that in a minute. And, and before we go on our way, let me just spend a couple of minutes wrapping up the meeting. Then we'll be out of here on time. Hmm. And that couple of minutes of less discussion time, more wrap-up time, adds enormously to the productivity of the meeting. Yeah, beginning, middle, end. It sounds like a lot of times the middle is more like a muddle, right, where we just, we're just throwing everything around and it's kind of going nowhere. Well, you know, it's funny. The dangerous thing about this discussion is most people will say, well, that's common sense. Yeah, Everybody, you know, duh. But think back to the last five meetings you've been to. Did you do that? When uh. you had meeting? I don't want to say anything about the organization you work for, but when you get together with your, your, your team, your colleagues, your boss, whatever, is this a natural thing that happens? And the answer is in most companies it doesn't. It's very logical, and it's, it's not complicated. People just don't do it. Is there, now, it seems like then there's kind of a human nature. There's a human reason why we don't do it. Is it, a, is it we don't want to tie down accountability? What, what is it that would make us muddle it up so much in the middle and then leave without anybody clearly knowing what we're doing? What's, what, why does that happen? I think it's habit. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we do work for a, a very large chemical company, and we're, we're in the headquarters building. We're not in the plant. We're in the headquarters building. Every single meeting, somebody gets up and says, let me discuss the exit from this room. And they'll tell you, in case of an emergency, we go down the hall, you go 15 feet to the right, there's an emergency stairs. If that's blocked, you go 20 feet to the left, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Huh. They give the actual egress instructions. Why? Because chemical companies are very, very safety conscious. Every meeting of every group at every facility everywhere in the world starts with a safety briefing. That's just habit. Huh. And, they do, and, and you, when you start to instill it in, it becomes, when I first did it, it's like, I'm in an office tower. How do I need to know where the elevator is? Like, I've, what's going on here? And they said, no, Bob, this is what we do here. Every meeting starts with this. And they've so built it into their routine, it's absolute second nature to hmm. them. And, and I think wrapping up meetings well it's second nature to me, and the clients we've worked with tend to automatically revert to it. I think if you start doing it in a couple of months, this, this is how meetings end around here. And, and, and three things, as we wrote in the piece that you yeah. mentioned, there's three specific things we recommend as the three habits to start with that will really help to drive that productivity. In fact, let's, um, let's actually do this. Let's take a break and come back and have you go through those three things uh, sure. that are the keys to the wrap-up. And I guess these all take place, Bob, like in the last five minutes of a if meeting? That. Yeah, if, if that. that, yeah. Okay, awesome. We'll continue the discussion. Stick with us, folks. We're speaking with Bob Frisch. You can go look out and find more up about Bob at strategicoffsites.com, strategicoffsites.com. Interesting insights about your meetings, folks. You have a beginning, the typical muddle, and then the end. When you're supposed to have a typical middle, we'll get to all of that. More with Bob Frisch when we come back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Okay, well, before we get started, you should know that there are five 
different styles of conflict. My Shaolin Temple style defeats your monkey style. Can we go? I have a lot of work to do. Nope. Nobody could hold a meeting better than Michael Scott on The Office. I hope that's not true. Our guest today uh, would probably have an argument with that. Bob Frisch joins us. He is a writer for HBR, Harvard Business Review. He and his partner at strategicoffsites.com. They're experts in meetings and also really more than that, organizational design, offsite facilitation, consulting, strategy design. And uh, Bob joins us today to talk us through an article he wrote uh, that was titled, Don't End a Meeting Without Doing These Three Things. He's helping us understand that every meeting needs a beginning, a middle, and an and a end, the close of the meeting. And he's going to walk us through what are the three most important things we all do in the last few minutes of a meeting. Bob, thank you so much for being with us again. It's a pleasure. Talk about your uh, the three key things so let's say we, we've had a meeting, we've been in there for our 55 minutes, and really, you need to go Google, everybody needs to go Google, Bob Frisch and HBR, Harvard Business Review, and it would get, it'll get you to a page that has probably, I don't know, 10 articles, I don't know how many are on them, 20 or something, I think. But one of them, Bob, is also about standing meetings. There's a lot of new rules about how to make a meeting more valuable um, that we won't have time to talk about today. Talk about the last couple minutes as we wrap up a meeting. Sure. And by the way, it may not be just an hour meeting. It could be a half-day meeting, right. a full-day meeting, a multi-day meeting. You know, if it's a 10-minute stand-up meeting at the beginning of the day, it's one thing. But if a, if a group of people is getting together to meet on a topic, the first thing is at the end to confirm any decisions that were made or next steps agreed to. So roll the clock back from the very start and say, okay, what we've agreed to is we're going to go with plan A, not plan B. Mary, Bill, and Betty are going to go off and look at this. They're going to come back next week, and they're going to report on X. Very specifically, just remind people, here's what was decided today. Here's, here's the next steps. Not a recap of let me take you through what we just did. Mm-hmm. But any key decisions, things that have come to closure or next steps, you should go ahead and just recap those so people understand who's going to do what by when coming out of the meeting or here's what this group has agreed to. Sometimes if we do a two, two or three-day offsite and there's lots of stuff being discussed, you may not remember at the end of day two what happened the morning of day one. Right. Often we'll build what we call a wall of decisions. As a decision gets made, we put it in a flip chart and put it on a wall. And over the course of a couple of days, there's 10, 15 items up there, things that have been discussed and resolved, and here's what's going to happen now. We simply go over, here's what's going to happen as an outcome of our having gotten together. Who does, so, who's responsible for that, Bob? The, the meeting host? Uh, does the host assign somebody to do these, this review? Well, sometimes it's unclear. Often it is the person who either called the meeting or led the meeting. But if it's a group of peers who meet and there's no natural uh, person to do this, you may say, gee, you know, Bob, will you take care of the recap? Will you scribe the meeting or take care of the recap? Hmm. Make it clear that Bob's now not in charge of the decisions. Simply the person at the end we're going to turn to and say, can you recap what happened here? And maybe write up some a little after a memo. Maybe not. But, but it's very important that you go around and, and simply say, here is the outcome of this meeting. And just remind everybody, because somebody may say, wait a minute, I actually didn't think we committed to have it right. for the next meeting. I thought we were going to have it next month. Yeah. Okay, now we spend a little bit of time and close the loop. 
because it wasn't exactly clear what had been agreed to. So by recapping, anybody has that sort of speak now or forever, you have the ability to simply say, because if nobody speaks up, the assumption is what I'm saying is what we just agreed huh. to. Well, and you can see, like you gave the the example from your chemical company, if you made it a habit to take the last five minutes or three minutes recapping mm-hmm. and gave a, even gave a chance for everybody on the team eventually to lead the recap so you could train everybody up, this could become a habit. It, it should become a habit. Right. That's the goal. <laughs> it's happening. Now, the, the second habit is if it's a longer meeting, again, if it's a regular every day, we get together for a half hour and talk about inventory, it's one thing. But if it's a meeting that people have been thinking about, that's been planned, your subordinates know that people are going away to talk about topic X, or you've been in the conference room with these folks for four hours, and other people know a meeting is taking place, we then would move and say, what's the communications point? We're not trying to script anybody, we're not telling you what to say, but... When we walk out, or, you know, if it's, it ends on Friday, when we walk into the office Monday morning and, 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 and people say, gee, boss, you know, you were in Atlanta, you guys met for a couple of days, what happened? Hmm. What are you going to say? What are we all going to say happened here? Because sometimes things are decided that should not go into or are not going to go into public consumption immediately. Let's all agree on a handful of communication points. What are the highlights? What are the three or four or five bullet points that characterize what we did today so that we can communicate it to our subordinates? Again, we're not trying to dictate what people say. Let's just be sure there's common messages. So if Mary, who wasn't here, asked three of us what happened, she gets roughly the same story from Mm -hmm. three people, and she's not playing touch the elephant. So what are a couple of communication points? If we have a a larger meeting, if we're getting together with a a 12-person executive team or 30 or 40 people, what we'll do is we'll actually text those communication points to the distribution list for the meeting as they're getting in their car walking out of the building. Huh. So they have it on their phone. So if they, if they are walking in the office, they say, what are those communication points? Often there's an email or text message from our team if we facilitate the meeting saying, here are the four communication points we all agreed to. Yeah, this seems like uh, this seems like what high, highly organized and and kind of smart communication firms do anyway. It, it's it almost sounds like what a political candidate would do, uh, but to keep everyone on point, and yet it's just a best practice for a business. Well, but even for something that's lower stakes, let's say we just got together, we're having a rough year, we're not sure if we're going to do the the, the holiday party again this year, or we're going to be giving you know, $25 gift certificates to folks. People know we're meeting it. We were talking about the holiday party. We've decided we're going to wait till next month and see what next month's numbers bring. Is that what we're going to tell folks? Hmm. Or we're going to tell folks, you know, we've met on it. We're waiting and seeing. We're going to have everybody will have an answer before Thanksgiving. And we'll let you know what we're doing. Yeah. Is that what we're all going to say? So just make sure that everybody, and again, we're not asking anybody to fib. Right. Let's just be sure that we're all very consistent about what we're going to communicate to the people who aren't with us right now. And so communication points are often a very important thing because people not in the room are going to be asking what happened. And, and so as well as number one, which is what do we actually decide, number two is if people ask us what happened, what are we going to say? Hmm. And there it can be a little more, oh, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about this. There was a healthy debate about that. 
that cannot just be the outcomes. It can also be a little bit of, you know, I don't get together with these people but once a year. It was really terrific just connecting with colleagues, and a lot of the time was spent just, you know, reinforcing the bonds across these three departments. Yeah. That can be a communication point. Totally. And again, it just seems so smart. to. It just is another step of everyone on the same page. We're all on the same page. Uh, what was the third one? What's the third key point? So the third one is a little bit um, – a little bit selfish. And this is often done when there is a, a meeting owner or there is a facilitator or somebody outside is helping you with the meeting. Um, but even if it's a more informal group of peers, if you only meet on a topic infrequently, we often say, okay, roll this back to the very, very beginning. When you got the meeting notice, the pre-read we sent out, the agenda, the room, the topic, the lunch we brought in, the temperature of the room, anything at all, what should have or could have been different for next time. Hmm. So often people will say, well, next time we meet and we're talking about so-and-so, it really is inappropriate that Fred's not here. So I'll write down, Fred's not here. I'm not going to debate whether the person's right or wrong. I'm simply getting input. Somebody will say, well, you know, there was no vegetarian option at the lunch, no vegetarian option. You know, whatever it may be, as trivial as you may think, people need to think about, okay, what would I do differently? What would I like differently? And this is kind of a name of continuous improvement. What should be different next time? If we could re-roll the tape, what would be different? Then you say, what went well? You know, this yeah. meets, meets four times a year. We, you know, we are the whatever it is committee. What went well? What did you like about the meeting, if anything? Often you don't hear anything at first. You've got to wait a few minutes. But, but people eventually will say, well, you know, we just don't talk very much, and it's good we actually met. Or they'll say, I really like the fact that we got the budget numbers three weeks ago, and I had a chance to talk about them with my team. So I call them uh, pluses and deltas. What do you like? What should change? My partner likes calling them roses and thorns. I guess mm. you can imagine why. Um, but various people have various names for this. And, um, and the other good thing is there is a rule of thumb in psychology, benefits before concerns. Yeah. I don't like that. I like people leaving, having spent a couple of minutes thinking about what did I like about this meeting? What went well? What should be repeated? It leaves, everybody leaves on a slightly upward note. They're thinking more positively. They want to get back together again. But they have had an opportunity to vent. So if it really bothered somebody that, gee, you know, Bill really should have been here, they have an opportunity to download anything they should see differently, and they have an opportunity to reinforce the things that went well, and then they leave the room. So what was decided? What are the next steps? What communication points if people outside of this room are going to be curious about what happened? And if it's a longish meeting, say a a half-day or full-day or multi-day meeting, then we'll do roses and thorns, benefits and concerns. We wouldn't do it for a routine. I wouldn't recommend it for an everyday meeting. But it is good if the group meets infrequently, if it's a larger group or a longer meeting, to do that capture of, and, you know, somebody may have been sitting there freezing for the last four hours, <laughs> and you had no idea they were sitting under an air vent. And they'll say, I've been freezing for four hours. Right. Or, you know, I, I really have had trouble hearing. You really should speak louder. 
you know, it would have been nice to hear that at the time. Sure. But now I know next time I'm in the room with Mary, I got to sit her in the front or I got to talk louder. <laughs> and bring her a sweater. Um, <laughs> I guess I guess part of this, Bob, is to – and then use your learnings for the next meeting. Make sure you go back and take that feedback and adjust. And you'll say, you know something you'll notice? You're all sitting in leather swivel chairs. The last meeting, there were a couple of comments about the chairs. We made sure that the hotel provided us with nicer seating this time. Yeah. So people say, well, gee, you know, I, I do remember they weren't comfortable. These, you know, they, these, these folks are trying better. Or if you can't do it, you'll say, look, we got some feedback last time that there wasn't enough time with the pre-read. We, we really apologize that we got it out on short notice. But you have to understand, finance really wanted these numbers right. We just couldn't get it out. But we know you were looking for more lead time. I'm sorry we weren't able to provide mm. it. But at least you're acknowledging that you're trying to do the best job you can and responding to the people's needs. What would you say, Bob, as we wrap up? We have about a minute left. What would you say I should do? So just the average kind of employee out there that that doesn't necessarily feel like they can run the meetings. But what can I do as um, as, as an attendee of a meeting to help it along and help it work? Well, I think as we're particularly if we're talking about these closure points. You know, you could say with five minutes to go, you know something? We've talked about a bunch of topics today. Could we just take a minute and recap where we are, what we've decided? Or, you know, I'm going to walk back into the break room, and and I'm going to have six people ask me what just happened. I know we don't want to talk about possibly Mm -hmm. canceling the the company event. What, What do you think we should all say? So people can, from the table, start to bring these closure points forward without saying, you know, we should do this every single meeting. People, you know, if you do feel like maybe Betty over there didn't take away what I think she should have taken away, you can just say, gee, I think I'm not clear. Can we just take a minute and recap what we decided on this topic? Yeah. And once the person restates it, Betty either will say nothing or say, well, we didn't agree to that. And now I know that I'm walking out without closure. There you go. And anybody can offer, I mean, just ask those questions. Absolutely. It's Bob, very safe, very easy. We appreciate you. Keep up the great work in, uh, in all you do. And everybody, go, listen, go read the book, Who's in the Room? How Great Leaders Structure and Manage the Teams Around Them. You can find out more information, again, at Bob's site, strategicoffsites.com. Thanks again, Bob. We'll take a break, folks. Uh, come back to a little Coach's Corner. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you lead healthier meetings. Stick with us. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. If you are one uh, who hold who holds meetings and manages and facilitates these meetings, wow, you got to learn. We really struggle, I think, a lot of us, knowing how to hold a meeting you might be really good at what you do. When you think about an engineer might be an incredible you know, person at understanding very detailed information and, and a lot of uh, depth, but maybe start to identify what the meeting is about ahead of time. Figure out what is our goal and have an objective for the meeting. A lot of times we choose the time allotted for the meeting based on how long we can get the meeting room. 
right? So if I can get a meeting room for a half hour, it's going to be a half hour meeting. If I can get it for an hour, it's going to be a one hour meeting. Is that not a backwards way of trying to decide how long you should hold a meeting? Wouldn't it make more sense to hold a meeting 37 minutes rather than one hour? If you only have 37 minutes of content, but you have the room for an hour, you don't have to get every dollar's worth out of your conference rooms. So some of this is pre-planning and and thinking and anticipating. Some of the best meetings, by the way, I've ever been to, they sent out some information for me to read and to prepare for before I went to the meeting. That way I came to the meeting – prepared. We will be covering these topics. We would love you to bring three ideas around these areas. And that allowed me to get my head wrapped around the meeting and actually up to speed. So I was running, even sprinting ready to be engaged actively in the conversation. Pre-planning could help a lot as well. Uh, We talked a lot about you know, in my day when I was a coach and a, or a consultant with Corporate America about standing meetings, if you usually would take an hour to get through a discussion, one time I went to a company where they didn't have any chairs in their meeting rooms. There were no chairs. All the tables were raised. They were lifted so you they were you could comfortably stand and take notes. But there were no chairs. And amazingly, the meetings were so much shorter. And so much more effective. Um, Now, you can't necessarily do that, right, if you need to spend four hours in a meeting. But if you have a regular meeting that's uh, happening every day or regularly, it might be smart for you to plan on just letting it be a standing meeting. And I promise you it will go a lot faster. Having an agenda for the meeting is another important idea to make sure you take the plan – and uh, institutionalize it. Whenever I would hold a meeting, I'm I'm a horrible time manager. It's not one of my gifts. It's not one of my fortes. So I would always have the top uh, kind of micromanager in the room be in charge of the schedule. And then I'd find a non-intrusive way that they could prompt me along. Uh, so not to be rude, not to be a jerk. They don't have to throw something at me, but they can just nod and say, next – or whatever whatever it takes. So make sure you do some pre-work and you're handing out the pre-work. Make sure you have a plan and that we have literally put out there, this is what we are going to try to accomplish in the meeting. Make sure you choose the time that's appropriate and needed. Also, make sure you have an agenda. In the plan, you should be asking other people that will be attending the meeting what should be on the agenda. That could all take place a, a, a week before the event, depending on the type of meeting. Now, for some meetings, you're thinking, I don't, this is overkill. I'm just going to wing it. Okay, fine. Then in the first minute of the meeting, prepare the agenda. What do we need to talk about really quick? What does everybody need to get out? And just go around the horn and let everybody tell you one or two things to put on the agenda and produce the agenda for the first five minutes of the meeting. Then hold the meeting and hold the meeting according to the agenda. Move it along, move it along, move it along. And then the last five minutes would be a healthy wrap-up as Bob Frisch just walked us through. Right. What are the takeaways? What are the you know, what are the expectations? Again, you don't have to do it. But here's here's a critical point. If you sit in a meeting all day long and it bores you and it's useless to you. You, I believe, have an obligation to communicate that one way or another. You have an obligation to give some feedback. It doesn't you don't have to be a jerk about it. You could just do it anonymously. 
you could actually take it to somebody that you have influence over, that influences you, that you trust, and that. And I'd give them the feedback. Nobody wants to hold meetings that they think are a waste of time. And nobody wants to attend a meeting that is a waste of time. So don't just chalk it up to, yeah, my bosses just hold boring meetings. If Because in the end, you're going to be a boss someday. And somebody on your team is going to say, you're the boss that holds the boring meeting. Watch out. Because the habit of your bosses become your habits. The best managers I ever saw, the best bosses I ever saw, they managed their meetings. They didn't waste the time of their employees, but they also – they never feared away or were afraid of the meetings either. They didn't steer away from them. Anyway, a little coach's corner for you. Basic rules and tools for a healthy, uh, a healthy conversation. And then we – of course, we always want follow-up. We always want feedback. And our feedback should be addressed in the next meeting as well. We'll talk about it, folks. Uh, Continue listening to us. More ideas, more information to help you lead healthier lives. This is The Matt Townsend Show. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. If you haven't learned this yet, apparently there's there are going to be people in your life. They're either, you know, they could be your children. They could be your your spouse. Uh, in Ben's case, it could be a parole officer. But you're going to have somebody near and dear to you. And these people are going to be irritants, possibly. They also could be uh, help. They could be there to lift you, to make your life better. They can tear you down. <laughs> beat you up. But if you can't work with people, then what else are you going to be left with? Well, maybe a chicken. According to a uh, a report we just got, uh, a French sailor has embarked on a journey around the world accompanied by his pet hen named Monique. Garrick Sudi. There's Monique right there. A 24-year-old from Brittany, France, has been traveling with his pet hen and chronicling... What'd you say, Monique? What'd you say, babe? Aw, cute little Monique. He's been chronicling their adventures since 2014. And, you know, for a minute he thought, maybe, maybe I ought to get a cat. I'll just have a cat, and I'll bring a cat as my companion instead of Monique. But then he thought, you know, that's going to take a lot of work. So the hen was the ideal choice. It wouldn't work. I mean, it wouldn't take work. The hen would, you know, the hen would just be there to be his friend. So now they just sit on the boat, float around the world. She follows every. She follows him everywhere. She's like just this little pal. They just sit on the side of the boat. So, Monique, what do you think about the sunset, Monique? What do you think, babe? Mmm, yeah. That's really good. What should we have for dinner, Monique? Oh, eggs? (laughs) Okay, Monique. You know, I guess when it comes down to it, uh, in Castaway, it's better than a ball. It beats a volleyball. At least a volleyball would, like, you'd be able to decide what it answers. Monique, does my bother, does my mother irritate you? Monique, answer me. 
Don't make me wring your neck, Monique. Get over here, you little chick. Yeah, I think she'd drive me crazy. And do they, it seems like it'd have a hard thing, it'd be hard to, like, stay on the boat for that little bird. Right? Because aren't boats a little slippery as you're walking along the sides? What does she grab onto her with her little... I think she uses her little legs. beak to, like, grab onto the rope in case she slips. Yeah, I bet you Monique's just learned to hold onto the rope. I bet you she could tie a great knot. Oh, yeah. All those sailor knots. Man. All I need to do is shout Monique, and she will come to me. She's to sit on me, give me company. She's amazing. What would you choose out there in the Twitter sphere? What would you choose? If you were going to take a pet around the world with you, what would you pick? A chicken? A hen? Personally, I'd want a horse. I've never had a horse. I bet a horse would be hard on a boat. Have you seen The Life of Pi? Yeah. I'd choose a tiger. Yeah, you'd be dead. Ah, uh, that kid didn't die. Well, you're not that kid. <laughs> not to be rude. I'm very good with cats. <laughs> Here, kitty, 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 kitty. When you think about it, folks, in the end, you're going to have to learn to work with people or you're going to be left circumnavigating the world with a hen. Nothing wrong with that. Don't want to dissuade anybody from doing that. People matter, and so people's skills matter. We probably, in fact, I believe strongly that that's one of the reasons you're here on this earth is to figure out yourself as you interact with others, to not get caught up in like the peer pressure where you think you've got to do something for some other reason than your values suggest. Instead, I think we're here to, to discern and figure out and become a, an agent that chooses how we're going to live. Do you believe that? Are you ever going to uh, be able to perfect dealing with people? I don't think so because every person you come across will be just a little bit different. But unless you want to spend the rest of your life on a boat or alone in your house, I mean, I get it. I'm somebody, I'm an introvert sometimes. I love to just be alone, except there's also times I want to go with people. I, I want to be with people. I want to hang out and learn and grow and change. So let's do what we can to start learning these skills on the personal level. Don't worry about everyone else learning them because they may not. But you in your life today can learn how to be a better team leader, how to be a better person, how to read people, how to listen, how to understand, how to manage your emotion, how to manage their emotion. So a little challenge for you as we end this coaching corner, what are you going to do? What's one thing that you can go make better today in your life by working better with people? What's one relationship you need to work on? And what's the most important thing you need to learn to manage that relationship more effectively? And then get on it. Go look up something on psychology today. Go to my website at matttownsend.com. Anywhere you can, gather the information you can, get the help. Just listen to the show for heaven's sakes. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. And when I work with clients and couples, I cannot tell you. It's it's almost every single couple. They, they just don't believe that uh, they can do that they could make a change themselves in themselves and make a change in their relationship by themselves. But one of my favorite quotes is two heads are better than one, and one head is better than zero. 
I would rather that just at least one person gets the idea that the of the outward mindset where my problem is I don't have enough ability, skill, control, um, insight into who I'm dealing with in these other people. And if I could take instead of just reacting to what they're doing to me, if I could actually turn it and go understand, go listen, go be impacted, then it would give me more and more power and more and more insight in how to create change and how to create a healthier life. Well, yeah, but what if the person's abusive? Right. If they're abusive, you got to be careful, but the principle still applies. If you're dealing with somebody that's abusive, it would be better that you pay attention and that you learn and you understand and you have an outward mindset instead of thinking their abuse is because of you. And then you go inward. I'm a loser. I'm no good. And then you shut yourself down and become something you're not. Over and over, I've seen these principles applied in the couples I work with. And it's one of the hardest things you can do because a lot of times when you listen to this, it induces some guilt because you're thinking, I'm I'm a loser. But the mere fact when you're when you're starting to process the guilt, um, you're starting to turn inward, aren't you? And inward's fine, except it's not going to change the situation. It's not going to change the scenario. So the outward mindset might simply be how do I start to take the values and the principles I believe in and implement them with others? How do I say that I want to be, you know, a loving, caring, amazing, wonderful husband, except I, I don't do that with my partner? And I, if I, what if I don't see my partner as a person? What if I don't understand their needs? When I work with my clients, so many times um, I'll have a part, one of the partners say, I know, I know, she's been complaining about that for 20 years. And I'm like, okay, hey, so have you tried to understand it? Well, she makes no sense. Okay, but have you tried to understand it? Then all we have to do a lot of times is sit down and start to understand it. But there's this weird game that we play where we all of a sudden think our problem is our spouse or our problem is, um, you know, they don't hug enough. They don't touch enough. And that becomes the big problem. And as long as I'm fixated on that problem of my wife not doing this or my husband that always does this, that problem is outside of me, and I'm not going to start to do anything with it. Three basic principles, basic steps, uh, seeing others, adjusting your efforts, and measuring your impact. It's called change, by the way. You got to change. Well, when when are they going to change? You can't worry about when they're going to change. You got to change. Well, you make it sound so easy. I know. And you make it sound so complicated. (laughs) It's human nature. If you're mad, don't assume you're mad because someone else is violating your life. Why don't you just assume you're violating some principle? That's why you're mad. If you weren't violating a principle, you probably wouldn't have a need to be mad. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. You... You sitting there, you listening in your car, wherever you are. What What's the one thing that you know you need to do? The one thing that has been, oh, just chasing you. 
if I just, I just got to do this one thing. If I, if once I'm in shape, this is going to happen. Once I, uh, once I'm a better dad, this is going to happen. We have these ideas. We carry them with us for years. Then all of a sudden, boom. You you can't fix certain things. A heart attack. I really should have been exercising. <laughs> Blasted. It's it's a big deal, folks, and all of us are battling life. It's you know, I don't ever want you to get depressed because of we keep bringing you things you can do. You don't even need to do it, but you could do something. Just do the thing, the one thing that you know, if you would just do it, it would it would have an impact. Well, I can't. I've tried to start an exercise program. You don't even need to try to start an exercise program. Just go start doing an exercise program. You don't need to build up a really intense program. You don't need to. You don't need to, you know lose weight and start you don't need to buy a scale you don't need to do all that just whatever's on your list i really need to call my kids but it's so hard to call them because they make me always feel so bad all right so why do you keep being prompted to call your kids i'm a big believer that uh the answers are already in you i don't when i work and coach somebody i don't need to um to make up new things for them to do. Lao Tzu, one of my favorite quotes, is at the center of your being, you have the answer. At the center of your being, you know who you are and you know what you want. So the center of you knows. Maybe your heart knows, but your head tells you something different. Your heart tells you, you just need to focus on family. Your head might be telling you, but I, I can't because I'll get behind in my career. Your heart might tell you, don't worry about weight. Worry about health. But your head's like, I don't know. I've already gained 10 pounds and I look horrible next to Stacy who went to high school with me. And then your, your head carries you away. Your heart already knows who you are. I call that your essence, right? The essence of who you are already knows that you're amazing, phenomenal, incredible. But then we get caught up in our ego, and our ego's like, you got to beat everybody. You got to be faster. And if you're not going to be faster, then you need to label yourself as incredibly slow with no hope. Roadkill. So our egos make us either be better than everybody or worse than everybody. Ugh. But your heart gets that, you know, you're good. Your heart gets that there's stuff you should be doing, but it also knows why you're not. It doesn't bring you peace, though. So your peace is only going to come by living in your essence. Your peace won't come long-term by living in your head because you're only as good as your head is good. And your head's going to change every time the lady next to you loses a pound. You're going to need to lose a pound if that's how you measure if you measure by wealth, then as soon as your neighbors inherit more money or earn more money or triple their income or buy a bigger house, your head says, see, you're a loser. And your ego kicks in. Meanwhile, your essence doesn't care if you're in a big house or a little house. Your essence just cares that you're connected to God, that you are connected to family, and that you're becoming 
better at who you are supposed to be. Basic, right? Basic. So be careful. As we as we go through life, it's it's every one of us. We're chasing we're chasing the illusion. We're chasing the dream. We're chasing the stuff that's really not even what we're about. And we'll get entirely exhausted in the chase. And eventually, I'm worried that some of us will get too tired to chase anymore. But we'll find ourselves, you know, climbing that ladder of success one rung at a time. We finally get to the top and we realize the ladder's against the wrong wall. We've become something we didn't even care about becoming. So just watch it. So ask yourself this one question. What is the one thing, not big, just what's the first step I need to take today? And go take that step. What is it? To become the change. A little bit of the change. Go check us out on iTunes and tune in. Go find our BYU Radio app. Download that so you can get back to all of our podcasts. Hundreds of them uh, for you to archive and, and to go listen to. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, if you turn on the TV or go online, you'll find two main stories prevail in the news. Some stories feature all the terrible things that people do. Others highlight the goodness of human nature. So what is our inherent nature? Are we born good or are we born selfish and evil? Here to discuss is the author of the article, Selfish is Learned, Mr. Matt Hudson. Matt, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. You bet. You, um, you, you've written quite the article, and uh, it appeared in Nautilus. Uh, and, and I guess what I, what I want to know, you may be answering the age-old issue, uh, inherently good, inherently bad. What, uh, what have you come up with? Yeah, so this is something that's been debated for centuries, millennia. Um, what, is the, what is human nature? Are we good people uh, or are we you know, filled with sin and we really need society to um, hold us to uh, better ideals? Um, and the research, based mostly on the work of David Rand, a psychologist at Yale, uh, points to the idea that people are naturally cooperative. Um, and it's not necessarily that we are born that way, that's, you know, there's some research on that, but that's not what this addresses. This is um, what are our intuitions, and those intuitions could be uh, genetic or they could be learned. And so he focuses on our, our learned intuitions and uh, argues that most people have learned the intuition um, to be cooperative in most situations. Yeah, to get out and, I mean, I guess... It's survival, right? It, it, the more people we know that like us, that it, and it's positive, um, probably, I guess, increases survivability. Yeah, humans are very social, and um, a lot of the things that we do, we really rely on other people for protection, for safety, for uh, mating, for uh, building large projects. I mean, look at a city. You can build a city by yourself. It's just a bunch of people cooperating and trusting each other. Uh, and so there's definitely a benefit to helping other people out. Uh, they, in turn, help you out, and we accomplish great things. And in this, I guess part of uh, the the process is 
how how you play it, I guess how you're trained to play the game of life in in a cooperative way versus uh, I guess a more competitive way. Yeah, so that's uh that's an important point. Uh our intuitions are uh, we they develop based on our experiences. So if you are in a situation where cooperation tends to pay off, where you scratch someone else's back and they end up scratching yours, then you develop this uh, heuristic or this rule of thumb that uh, generosity and cooperation and and prosociality are uh, productive, are helpful, that they uh, lead to success. And you're more likely to use that as your sort of default choice. You're not always going to think about, okay, now is this, is helping this person going to help me out? Um, It's just going to be your natural inclination to, you know, be a good person. Whereas if you're in a situation where it's sort of dog-eat-dog and you learn that, um, you know, if you help other people out, they're just going to take advantage of you and stab you in the back, you might develop a different intuition, and that intuition might be to, uh, to be selfish, Right. is And we talked about it. And in fact, we've uh, talked to David before about his book and his model. And it talk, it gets into the, the prisoner's dilemma, which is a game that they play to show, you know, decision making where if I if I benefit you or if we work together, we can make more. But if I become selfish, then you become selfish and we get entrenched. And but what really, I guess. That that's that's kind of an experiential process, right? Not just the game, but in life. If I am if I am constantly treated in a in a competitive way, if I seem to be losing anytime I choose cooperation because others aren't going for cooperation, I, I will just naturally go selfish, won't I? And and it, it might it, it might not even seem like a moral issue to, issue to me. It might just seem like a survival issue. That's right. So the prisoner's dilemma, is, as you know, it's this simple economics game that's used in a lot of uh, research in economics and in psychology and, uh, and other fields. And it's kind of a metaphor for life. Uh, if you play a, a single round of this game, you decide whether to you know, cooperate or defect with the other person, and the other person decides the same thing. And if you um, both cooperate, then you know you get some reward, but if you cooperate and the other person defects, then, then you're punished for it. Um, and it's really, it really becomes a powerful model of human interaction when you play a, a series of repeated rounds with the same person, um, because then some more complicated strategies can become involved. Uh, in just one round, it's, it always pays to defect, no matter what the other person does. But in multiple rounds, if you do that, then the other person is going to you know, take revenge against you. So you may want to cooperate uh, to sort of signal to the other person and hope that the other person doesn't take advantage of you. So it can get kind of complicated. Um, it's in interesting. General, it's- that component of time. So however yeah. long this relationship's going to go on may determine if being selfish or selfless is going to serve better long term. That's right, and and most of our interactions in life, uh, most of our important interactions, are with people with whom we will interact again. So it helps to build up this reputation or build up this level of trust or this standard of cooperation so that it can continue going forward. 
It's such an interesting um, dynamic, I guess, and it shows that it, it, how you how you are trained up and. As a child, if if my parents are constantly selfishly going against me, I could be enculturated into buying into the idea that selfishness play, pays off long term. Um, but then that that will change based on who I hang out with and who I'm married to and my ability to to read the situation. I guess that's right. And and so uh, Rand and his colleagues actually tested this idea. So in one series of experiments, they, um, they asked people to play what's called a public goods game. Uh, basically, there are four people. They're each given some money. Uh, they can each decide to put some of that money into a shared pool. Whatever money is in that pool gets multiplied and then redistributed. So uh, selfishly, it's, you know, for one person, it, it makes sense to not put any money into that pool because you get to keep your money, and then you also get to share in you know, whatever anyone else puts in there. Right. And so they had people play this game in various conditions. Some people, they, they asked them to make the, their decision very quickly, uh, which kind of forced them to go by intuition. Uh, other people, they you know, encouraged them to use, they explicitly said, you know, think intuitively about this. And in generally, they, in general, they found that people were more generous when they thought intuitively. Um, so they put more money in when they had to react quicker. Uh, so that sort of supported this general idea that people are naturally cooperative. Hmm. But they found that this pattern didn't hold for people who said that they, in general, in life, could not trust other people. So it's as if those people had not learned, had not developed this intuition that cooperation pays off. And therefore, when they had to think quickly and use their intuition, they did not become more generous. Oh, so in t- intuition, we, we might think of it as a mystical thing, like my gut just tells me this, but the gut may just be your history experienced. Exactly. So apparently over a, a lifetime, um, people can develop different intuitions. And they also... Uh, Rand published another paper a couple years after that showing how quickly intuitions can change, and it can take just a few minutes. So in this study, subjects either played uh, repeated rounds of the prisoner's dilemma where they might uh, interact with someone for maybe eight rounds, and there, in these multiple round games, it pays to cooperate because then other people will cooperate with you going forward and... um, and so it encourages people to be generous. Other people play just single rounds where it pays to not be, not, uh, be selfless and to just sort of defect hmm. and take. Uh, and so co- then comparing these two groups, they then played uh, this public goods game. And the researchers found that those who had uh, just done the multiple rounds of Prisoner's Dilemma for about 20 minutes, they were more likely to cooperate in this public goods game. So just, you know, in under half an hour, their intuitions had changed hmm. so that they were different from the from the people who had been encouraged to be it's like It's like they were primed, right? I guess so you could be primed to be good in the moment um, just by what you were doing before you got there. Yeah, so it doesn't take a whole lifetime to make someone a good person or a bad person. It can just 
take 20 minutes of interacting with people in one way versus another way, and that can change your, your intuitions. How so, interesting. Whether it used to be selfish or selfless. Yeah. And then, I mean, I guess even if I just went through a really crazy moment where I was selfishly <laughs> totally taken advantage of, I wonder if if I then was able to go debrief with somebody who could help me see it clearly or differently, if that might prime me again to have a better interpretation again tomorrow. Yeah, it's possible that even just one uh, short interaction with someone that's maybe a minute long, that could even change your your default reactions to people. Which tells us, I guess, we have a lot of power with other people um, to influence them or prime them for selflessness. Yeah, it's sort of this pay-it-forward idea. Uh, if you're nice to someone else, then that could change that person's day so that uh, they end up being nice to the next person and so on. Wow. Crazy good. That's great. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Matt Hudson, and Matt is the author of the book, The Seven Laws of Magical Thinking, How Irrational Beliefs Keep Us Happy, Healthy, and Sane. He also uh, is the book, uh, the author, uh, I mean, you can go find that book at MagicalThinkingBook.com. Um, And we'll continue the discussion of his article, Selfishness is Learned. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you uh, see the good in the world. We'll be right back. Give it to me now. I want today. I want tomorrow. I want to wear them like braids in my hair. And I don't want to share them. That naughty girl from Willy Wonka. She needs to share. Shame on her. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Today we're speaking with Matt Hudson. He is the author of an article that appeared in Nautilus, uh, Selfishness is Learned. And he's also the author of the book, The Seven Laws of Magical Thinking, How Irrational Beliefs Keep Us Happy, Healthy, and Sane. Matt, thank you again so much for being with us. My pleasure. When we when we get into this, and uh, and I guess your book, uh, Seven Laws of Magical Thinking, as well, um, people, there's just basic, I, I guess, psychological terms or psychological conditions that are going on. Is that what you refer to as magical? Just something that works that we don't know is working. Um, I use a, a kind of a specific definition of magical thinking. Um, so some people use it to describe just sort of irrationality or um, belief that something great is going to happen, sort of irrational optimism. Um, I use it to refer basically to belief in the supernatural. So magical thinking would be believing in luck or destiny or mind over matter or life after death, that mm. sort of thing. Yeah. And it can be subconscious belief. So even if you say, I don't believe in luck, but then you end up crossing your fingers. Um, that signals, you know, you're behaving as though you believe. So it suggests this sort of subconscious or intuitive belief. And so I would call that magical thinking, too. Fascinating. And in the book, you bring up seven laws of magical thinking. Maybe just take us on a journey. What are some of those? Um, so one of them is, um, you might hear this phrase a lot, uh, everything happens for a reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's this belief in destiny or fate or, or karma um, or divine providence, the idea that 
things that happen to us are somehow guided by an intentional universe. So good things happen to good people or bad things happen to bad people or you're put on a certain path so that something can happen or that so you can learn a particular lesson. And I think this emerges from our, our social instincts. So we, we're used to thinking about uh, the intentionality behind events because a lot of things that happen to us or around us are caused by people. And so it pays to think about who did this and why. Right. And then we kind of generalize and apply that thinking to even natural events like hurricanes. Like, who, who, why, why did this hurricane happen? Was it, um, you know, to punish a city for something? Like, you know, people said that New Orleans was hit by a hurricane a few years ago because of the amount of sin there was in that city. Um, so it's easy to think, like, you know, what is the meaning behind this event? That's kind of a, an intuition that we have. It's, it's, I guess it, a lot of this is about making up the meaning, right? And we, we're looking for it, and it, it seems, too, to all come from a more social, you know, to create some social connection, some social meaning that's healthier with others. Yeah, so there are a couple of benefits to magical thinking. Um, I'm, an a- I'm an atheist and a skeptic, and I don't believe in magic, at least yeah. on an explicit level. Um, but I can still see how, even if these beliefs are uh, mistaken, that there can be benefits to them. Um, and one of them is that they can bring a sense of meaning to the world. So there's some research showing that um, when something tragic happens to someone, uh, if that person sees it as the work of a, of a good God or is somehow you know, meant to be or, or part of their life's plan, then they recover better psychologically from that tragic event huh. uh, because they see, oh, there must be a silver lining here, and then they look for that silver lining, and then they find or create a silver lining, uh, and it helps the, the recovery process. Yeah, and, and it gives, it, it, yeah, it ties the meaning to the event to hopefully, like a bigger hope, I guess. That's right. So uh, instead of just seeing um, a death or an accident or a job loss as just all around bad, um, you kind of think, no, is there something positive to be found in this? Is there some way to strengthen uh, myself or my relationships with others or to see the world in a different way? And it kind of motivates you to go through that growth process. Hmm. What are some more uh, examples of some of the laws, the magic laws of magical thinking? Um, one is this idea that objects carry essences. And so we value celebrity memorabilia or um, family heirloom. Huh. Um, so just uh, if an object is just touched or owned by <laughs> someone you care about, yeah. it somehow makes that object special. There's some sort of magical essence to it. Um, and so people will um, think that they'll you know, play better wearing um, maybe shoes that have been uh, touched by their favorite sports hero or, um, or they'll feel comforted wearing a sweater that had been owned by their grandparents um, or they'll feel cursed. A lot of people would not want to wear an article of clothing that had been worn by a Nazi, for instance. Even right. If, even if it had been washed, there's just something. 
something slightly creepy about that. Yeah, don't let that in our house. It's it, yeah. it, I guess, and again, I guess that's kind of the. It's like some of it seems a little irrational, and it's but it's so accepted and rational. Yeah, um, I mean, it, it's it's so. Uh, we don't think of it as magical thinking. It just seems um, kind of natural that, of course, you would want to own this, you know, thing that had been owned by uh, a celebrity or that you wouldn't want to wear a sweater that Hitler had worn. <laughs> right. you know? Well, I, we had a, one of our kids, uh, a basketball star, threw his wristband up into the stands and my kid brought it home and all I could think was disgusting. That yeah. thing is just full of sweat. But yeah. he's like, Dad... It's the greatest sweat ball I've ever seen. Um, what, Matt, what are some other uh, magical thinking issues we're dealing with or laws? Uh, a common one is belief in luck. So we have all these things that we do, like wearing lucky shirts or crossing our fingers or knocking on wood. Um, and that results, I think, from just our, our pattern finding. Um, so people or animals in general learn by finding patterns in the world between cause and effect or recognizing certain things as uh, in the same category. Um, like those are both trees, for instance, even though they look slightly different. Hmm. And so by naturally looking for patterns in the world, we might think that, okay, if I do this and then that happens, maybe this caused that. Uh, if I wear this shirt and then I win a tennis match, maybe the shirt helped me win the tennis match. And then you attribute luck to this shirt. Uh, and there's some research showing that that, in some cases, can actually be beneficial in that it can provide a sense of control uh, when you lack control. Hmm. So there was one study where subjects were given a golf ball and they were asked to make 10 golf putts. And half of them were told that the golf ball was a lucky golf ball. And those subjects actually made about 35% more successful golf putts than the other subjects. Really? So it just it's sort of a placebo effect. It yeah. made them uh, feel more effective and it enhanced their performance. It, it, but, the, but the answer was still in the person, right? They didn't have a magical right. force driving the ball to the hole. It was just believing more in yourself. So it is a placebo effect, I guess. And, and a lot of this magic might seem – it might be placebo, but the results still show that they're still there. It works. Yeah so, the, yeah, yeah. so the effects come not through some um, magical or mystical force in the world. It's all self-generated. It's sort of, um, it's like Dumbo's um, Dumbo flying yeah. with the feather. He believed he could, and therefore that's what made him able to do it. Well, and I guess that's a great theory until all of a sudden you believe you're really lucky and you've lost your house your car in a gambling problem. Um, and I guess the crazy thing about humans is we could just keep, you know, well, luck will change tomorrow, right? You know, luck, it'll be different tomorrow. I just need to wear yeah, my so different socks. That's right. So that's one of the dangers of magical thinking. Um, gambling, for instance, we might rely too much on luck and think that it will guide us through. And so maybe you don't need to prepare for a test or for a presentation and um, maybe you don't need to see a doctor because if you just believe you'll get better, then you'll get better. Mm. Um, so you really need to 
you know, pay attention to science and, and medicine and uh, rationality and think, okay, these are the, the steps that I logically need to take to uh, make what I want to happen, happen. But then magical thinking can be sort of, you know, once you've done all you can do, otherwise uh, it can add a little bit of extra support. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I guess too, and just reconnect us back to the fact that that um, beliefs matter. What we believe really matters to us, whether it's factual or not. That's right. That's, uh, I mean, everything that we do is guided by by our beliefs. Um, we can't really know reality directly. It's all interpreted through our, our perceptions and our thinking. So uh, beliefs are really important in that way. And I guess the hard thing about beliefs and questioning beliefs is you'd have to question them with more beliefs. So how does how does one question their own thinking without being trapped in their thinking? Um, that's a really deep question. Yeah. Uh, somehow we get by. Yeah, we do. Um, it's yeah, such... I, I would say intuition. Yeah. I mean, if we were to logically think about everything that we do and say and think, uh, Scientifically, then we wouldn't get very far, and that's that's why we have to rely on on reflexes and intuition and rules of thumb. It's great advice. Great advice. Well, Matt, we appreciate your time on the show again, and um, good luck with uh, your book, Magical Thinking: Seven Laws of Magical Thinking: How Irrational Beliefs Keep Us Happy, Healthy, and Sane. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. You bet. Interesting, interesting stuff. There's so much to learn, folks. Your thinking matters. And interesting, too, your thinking influences other people's thinking. It's uh, There's power in this cooperative world we live in. There's also power in your intuition, that sense, that deeper sense inside of you of what's going on. Um, that higher power you believe in, there's power there. We'll take a break. Come back. Continue the journey, helping you see the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Whenever you find yourself before a judge, think before you plea. If you've recently gone through a messy breakup with your significant other and you want to get back at them by vandalizing their car, think before you key. If you've had too much Dr. Pepper to drink on a long road trip and decide to stop on the side of the road to relieve yourself, think before you wee. And the next time you're taking a court-ordered class on decision-making called Thinking Matters and are toying with the idea of attempting a getaway via the ceiling, please think before you flee. This message brought to you by thinkers across America. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. I'm telling you. It's so interesting how we we are connected and uh, our goal, if we want to influence people, you got to look at your own thinking, right? And then know that everything you're doing, everything you're saying is going to influence others as well. Um, 
Here's an example of where you got to be careful what you bring on the airplane. Airline officials say they called for help after a passenger was found stowing a monkey in his shirt during a Las Vegas-bound flight. It's a big monkey. <laughs> the Frontier Airlines spokesperson Richard Oliver says the incident happened Tuesday night on a flight from Columbus to Las Vegas. Oliver says the passenger broke policy by not informing the airline that he was bringing a service animal on board and then refused to turn over documents verifying the monkey's status. So we've talked about service animals. Um, uh, what do we call those, Terry? The the animals that comfort animals. Yes. Monkey see, monkey do. No, that's different. That's a different one. Um, like a comfort animal, yeah. you might need a dog or a cat. To a help. turkey. We had a turkey. We had a turkey once. once. There was photographs. And online. then you know we had the one the guy that wanted to bring the mule on his comfort mule. Um, so this guy brings a monkey on board, but doesn't tell everybody. Now you can't. Have a monkey on board. You must declare all monkeys before boarding the airplane. Well, and I would bet pretty much all all animals ought to be declared. I mean, I don't want a guy next to me with a cobra, right? Even if it's a comfort cobra. This animal, the monkey, by the way, was a certified service animal. Oliver says the animal was brought uh, surreptitiously onto the plane in a duffel bag and never got loose during the flight. It wasn't immediately clear whether the passenger faces consequences or not. You know who else was on that flight? Who? (coughs) Oh, was it on Hillary's airplane? I think so. That's why there's that buzz in the background. This is Hillary's (coughs) Hillary commenting about the monkey. (coughs) Hillary, how'd you feel about the monkey? (coughs) Wow, she still can't get rid of that cough. I worry about her. She's got to kick that. You know what? I think she might be allergic to monkeys. That's another problem with just having any service animal on board is, you know, what if you're allergic? Hmm. I could send you into a coughing fit. Uh, (laughs) I don't know. What do you think, Terry? Any other news that we have to pay attention to this hour? That just burning in your heart. I found this interesting. Formula One, yeah. right? It's a national, uh, international. I'm turning into Hillary Clinton. Hold on. Oh, he's having a moment. Excuse me. Had to had to cough up that whatever obstruction was. Um, so for, uh, Formula One, international racing circuit. Uh, yeah. As this puts it, if NASCAR is known for souped-up stock cars and salt-of-the-earth drivers, Formula One is about space-age engineering and globe-trotting racers. Right, billion-dollar cars, all kinds of crazy money being thrown around in these uh, different uh, races that they have. As 400 million global viewers for each individual race they have, right? Yeah. So uh, it, the, the series was purchased by Liberty Media, a cable television conglomerate with stakes in Charter Communications, Sirius XM Radio, and the Atlanta Braves. Really? They purchased the series for $4.4 billion. Wow. That's a... That's a serious I, – I had no idea Formula One was so big. So big. $4.1 billion? $4.4 billion Boy, what they sold that's, the series for. Amazingly, that's still $2 billion short of the NCAA football it is. revenue <laughs> of the top 10 teams in the – Now, the television audience has grown by 40% since NBC Sports took over the domestic broadcast wow. rights in 2013. Yeah. More access, people watch, all that kind of stuff. But Formula One. $4.4 billion. 
Don't ask Gary Johnson what Formula One is. Gary, Formula One? Isn't that an ingredient in Wrigley's gum, Formula One? I think it's what children eat before they uh, are old enough to have solids. (laughs) And another story. Yeah. For years, food technology companies have referred to their products. Food technology companies. Have referred to their products. As cultured Uh or lab-grown. Hold on. Lab-grown food products. Yes. So what are we – are we talking about – Animals? Meat. They grow meat-like products in laboratories. So they're, they're trying to figure out what are we, how we're supposed to refer to this. Do we refer to it as cultured? Is it lab-grown? What's the most appetizing way to say fake food? Now, hold on now. Yeah. Do they grow this meat on the bones? No. And under the skin of animals? Petri dishes. Oh, are you serious? Yeah. And we're calling it – they want to know – they want the, uh, they want people to say, should we call it cultured? Yeah, food. Well, that's what they call it, cultured or lab grown. These companies, it's alive. There's these companies making their first foray into the public eye. They need to have a more PR friendly <laughs> okay. name. Okay. okay. Pro pink protein, pink protein. Remember pockets. the Dr. Frankenfurter. Remember the pink slime that was yeah. in hamburgers? Yeah, that that's the kind of stuff we're talking about. Uh, to get over that, there's a push to coalesce around a new term. Okay. I wanted to ask you to what? see if this works. Okay. Okay. Clean food. No. 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 Uh, balabnia. Balabnia. Can you pass me a slice of the balabnia? <laughs> by, by opting for this terminology, the industry hopes to better communicate to people the ethos behind their products rather than the actual process as how they're created. Man alive. How about pink protein pockets? <laughs> protein pockets. Protein pink pockets. pockets. Huh. <laughs> pink pockets. They're, they're trying to get, you know, up next oh, to say like is... clean energy, yeah. clean coal. Oh, I'm sick It's a now. positive term. I just invited someone to lunch and now I'm sick. Okay, we'll have to come back to this. Yeah. We'll come back next hour discuss what to call cultured or lab-grown food. That's not grown on the bones of an animal. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be right back.